morning, Bethany. Uh, working with EV Free, I was preaching out and around in our district a lot, and so I started keeping a list of when I preached and where I preached. And the last time I was here was in 2011. Do the math on that. I mean, that means my oldest granddaughter was only one at the time, so a lot has changed. But it's good to be back and to see some faces that were here when I was there. I've got some friends from other church connections that have shown up, um, which is always great. And I really appreciate the worship set um, because it really sets us up for Acts chapter 15. Um, As you've probably already noticed as you've been studying together in Acts, God's been moving the church out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and it's heading out into the uttermost parts of the earth. So the the movement is going, uh, just as Jesus said it would. But in so doing, the church has been moving further away from its Jewish ethnic roots, which is causing some tension. Um, And chapter 15 is very significant because what's going to happen is that issue is now going to come to the forefront. What do we do with these people who've never been Jewish? You may have noticed that there's this fascinating movement in Acts, at least fascinating for those of us who like history and the big rock kinds of things that happen, um, because it has been moving from a exclusively Jewish movement, basically, to more and more Gentiles who are getting in on it. But the way that it goes is it starts with Hebraic Jews. That means they're Jewish both ethnically and culturally living in Israel, right? So they're the Jewish of the Jews. And then you've got the diaspora Jews, those who had been sent out uh, with a lot of different scatterings who were culturally and ethnically Jewish, but living somewhere else, but keeping their Jewish identity. And then you had the Hellenistic Jews starting to get in on it. And these are people who are ethnically Jewish, religiously Jewish, but culturally Greek. They said there's a lot of things in the Greek culture that don't violate anything that we see in the law, so we can absorb some of that. And then you get the Samaritans who are half Jewish, half Gentile. Then you get the Gentile proselytes. Those are the ones who are actually going to go so far in identifying with Judaism that they would be circumcised. So that's a real commitment. And then you have the God-fearing Gentiles who say, not so far, right? I appreciate God. Jehovah is is the one true God. I want to follow him, but there are certain things I'm not going to participate in. And then the gospel is now going to Gentiles who have none of those things in their background. They're raw pagans, as we may refer to them, right? They have no concept of who Yahweh is or what he's done. And that's where it starts to get really complicated for them because the trickle of Gentiles, a few, has now become a flood, And the Jews in Jerusalem couldn't refute the principle of Gentiles uh, following Yahweh. In fact, you see this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, that there is this openness of God to say, I'm going to include Gentiles in what I'm doing here. In fact, Abraham, where it all started, you are blessed to be a blessing, including to the Gentiles. So they couldn't argue on the principle of the thing, but what they assumed, and part of it was because of things that are in the law, is if a Gentile comes to faith in Yahweh, He needs to keep the law and the meals, the Passover and the Feast of Booths and all the rest of that stuff all tied together. But now what's happening is these Gentiles are coming to faith in the Messiah, Jesus, but they're not first becoming Jews, which, again, culturally, a Gentile would sort of start following with Israel and they'd keep the Sabbath and all the rest of that stuff. So they first identified as Jews and then became connected to Yahweh. Now we're saying this Messiah isn't requiring you to first become Jewish. And so what is beginning to happen is there's these rumblings 
in some of the churches about what do we do with these Gentiles. Now, for those of us who've never been Jewish, we're really glad it worked out the way it did. Uh, because it becomes really good news. But Paul, as we put all this stuff together, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia and Luke's account here in Acts 15, if you put those two things together, it seems that when Paul and Barnabas got back from the first missionary journey, they'd been sent out from Syria, Antioch. There's two Antiochs. We'll go into that in a minute. But Syria, Antioch, so up north of Israel there. Uh, they've been sent out. They come back. Somewhere in there, Peter has also come up there because a lot of people are coming to know Jesus as Messiah. And Peter's eating with the Gentiles. I mean, after all, 10 years earlier, he had hung out with Cornelius. He had to have a vision and had to repeat it three times to other people to cement the fact that, yes, God is reaching out to Gentiles. So he's hanging out with Gentiles until some believers in Jesus who are friends of James come to Syrian Antioch and say, Nah, not so quick, not so quick here. Uh, you Gentiles, there's some things you need to take care of. And so Paul has to write to the church in Galatia, which is in Pisidian Antioch. You'll have to look that up on, on a map. Um, he writes to them and says, there was a problem here. So pick it up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Syrian Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned, for certain men came from James... He was eating with, as is before, certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Those who felt you have to be circumcised, if you're male, in order to then be a follower of Jesus the Messiah. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... That's an interesting phrase, because this is also in that same letter where it says, keep in step with the Spirit, right? This was not in step with the gospel. It didn't fit this idea of not being with Gentiles. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews, right? You're not even doing that. And it, we do know that Peter basically repented of that, and they got things worked out. But let me show you the map here just so that we can keep this all straight. There's uh, Pisidian Antioch up in what is now Turkey, and Syrian Antioch is the one that's just north of Israel. So the, as Paul is writing to this church where this whole, I, I've got to follow the law in order to follow Jesus was becoming an issue, he basically is saying to them, let me tell you a story. And then he tells the story of what went on down in Syrian Antioch, because he's trying to make clear Jesus never said you had to first become a Jew in order to become a follower of Jesus. And that is the principle that he wanted to stand on. Which brings us into chapter 15. That was a long introduction, I know. Um, I was told that I could preach as long as I want, but you all want to be gone by about 11.45. So, um, <laughs> verse 1. But some men came down. It's always funny when it's referring to Jerusalem and you're going anywhere else, you're coming down. And then if you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. So some men came down from Judea to Syrian Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, now look at this next two words, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, I love Luke's sort of understatement there, right? No small dissension and debate uh, with them. 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Let's let that first generation of leaders, those apostles, settle this for us. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both, through both Phoenicia and Samaria, so staying to the coast, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, if you know anything about those areas of Phoenicia and Samaria, why would they be so excited uh, about the conversion of the Gentiles? Because they are Gentiles, that's right. So we always love people who support our own views. And basically what they're hearing is, I don't have to first follow all the Old Testament laws, the Hebrew Scripture laws, in order to follow Jesus? This is good news! And so as they're talking to those Gentiles on the way down, they're headed to Jerusalem to find out what do the leaders think. So, basically again, what's happening is people are saying, some people are saying, you have to obey the whole law or you cannot be saved. And so the Syrian Antioch church, which by the way was the, most, the first and most multi-ethnic church recorded in the book of Acts, I hope that it was pointed out to you earlier, uh, that after Stephen got martyred, these Hellenistic Jews who had the Greek culture said, well, if those of us who've already kind of embraced Greek culture can know Jesus, can't the people who've never been Jewish, right? And so they began to plant this church that was full of all kinds of countries. It's very exciting to read. But anyway, that's a sermon for another time. So Paul now has been sent down with Barnabas to Jerusalem to talk with the elders, the leadership there at the church in Jerusalem about what, what do you do with this? And they first start with the testimony of the Syrian Antioch Christians. That's in verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, I love this, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Now, again, because if you've read the end of the story here, this is a watershed moment in the history of the early church. Luke is very clear to say this wasn't done in a dark room, in a back alley by a few guys. Right? They were welcomed by the church, they were welcomed by the elders, they were welcomed by the apostles. This involved a lot of people uh, as they tried to come to this decision. And while they were there, these Syrian Antioch Christians declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, verse 5, these are the Christian Pharisees. Now, as I was reading this again and preparing this sermon, I was thinking, I don't, that's not a phrase I've heard a lot, right? Because what do we think of with Pharisees, right? They're the law-keeping, Jesus-crucifying kind of thing. But I think we're too harsh on them. Because honestly, when you get to know them in the New Testament, they are the most sort of evangelical, fundamental followers of God that you can find in the New Testament, right? But some of them never got that piece about God's opening this up wider than to those of us who keep the law. So that some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, but notice he says call them believers, so they are followers of Jesus. They, we will see them in heaven, these folks, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Don't miss those words. This is not just... Well, you know, you might want to think about that, or it might be good for your own spiritual disciplines, or anything like that. It's, no, if you don't do these things, you are out. So really what's at stake is, what is the gospel? Now, I think part of what happened here with the Pharisees is that they already believed in a resurrection, right? The Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. That was why they were sad, you see? 
Old joke, but it works every time. Um, but the Pharisees believed in resurrection, so they, when they came to Jesus, they felt like there's not a lot we have to change about what we believe. It's just the Messiah has come. He's fulfilled the prophecies. We just keep living our life the way we live it. And I don't think the Pharisees wanted to exclude the Jews. They simply wanted them to play by the rules. But whose rules, right? And so this really is a linchpin kind of moment. The problem with what the Pharisees are proposing from my standpoint is that history and experience prove that any co-requirement about what it means to be saved soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means of salvation. The way I put it is this. Jesus and never stops with one thing. How many of you have been Christians long enough to know that that's the case? Right? You begin to say, yes, it's Jesus that saves, and you need to tithe. You need to vote for a particular political party. You need to use the ESV, because that stands for extra special version, <laughs> as opposed to the NIV, which is the nearly inspired version. You, 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 know, you just start adding things to this stuff, and pretty soon the list just keeps growing. And so it's a very important thing that they're going to be discussing here. Now, I love this in verse 6 with Peter's testimony. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there was much debate, and again, if you underline your Bibles, that's a, that's a good one to underline. This, again, nobody charged in and said, Thus saith the elders of Jerusalem. There was much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, After that much debate, because have you ever been in meetings where the guy who holds, usually it's a guy, who holds most of the power and there's a controversial issue, he speaks first, then how much discussion is there usually? <laughs> Not a lot, right? And then people vote with their feet, right? They just exit, because it's clear this wasn't really a discussion. That's what I love about this historical record of what went on. There was much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the Cornelius incident that he's referring to. It happened 10 years earlier. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And again, if you're underlining your Bibles, watch this. Four times he will talk about them and us. But notice what he does each time. By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of them, basically, the disciples, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, I've got it later in my notes, but I want to say it right now. Notice the graciousness of Peter. Because he doesn't say, these Gentiles, these goyim, they get saved the same way we've been saved. He says, no, we, ethnic, cultural Jews who are followers of Jesus Messiah, will be saved the same way they are, which is by grace through faith in Christ alone. He could have easily, I mean, he's, it's a primarily Jewish audience, right? But he says, no, 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 no. They get saved the same way we got saved. We got saved the same way they got saved, right? It's faith, no matter which side of that coin you're on. And so basically, Peter asks that question about why are we putting a yoke on them? 
little side note, I looked it up. This, to take the yoke was what it was called when a Gentile became a proselyte. Now, remember, that's the one who actually committed to circumcision. Basically went the whole way in following Yahweh. And he says, so why would you want them to take on that yoke when we haven't done so well with that? The good news is that that's not required of us to keep the entire law. In fact, we can't. And I already highlighted the four times that Peter uses the us, them. I I think that that's significant. But that raised this question for me. Do you ever think that people have have to become like you in order to be saved? It's subtle. And if you don't want to run into people who believe that, stay off of most social media. (laughs) Because people will take so many things and say, look, if you believe that or if you do that, there's no way that you are actually saved. Right? And this passage says it's faith in Christ alone. That doesn't mean there are things you shouldn't clear up or learn better on or change because it's offensive to you or to someone else. We're saying the the core of whether or not you're saved is have you embraced what Christ did as payment in full? Was it enough? Or is it Jesus and? Verse 12. Now Barnabas steps in with Paul to address this. Peter first kind of weighed in. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent after Peter talked about us and them. Right, Because that, I'm sure, was kind of sitting a little hard for them. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Interesting note, um, the church that we attend in Bakersfield is also going through Acts. I got to preach on Acts 13. And that's where it had been Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. And then you hit chapter 13 and it becomes Paul and his associates. <laughs> Paul becomes the lead guy. But when it comes to Jerusalem Council, this is still Luke recording this, he switches it back to the old one. Why? Who's got more chips to play in Jerusalem? Barnabas, right? Paul was still kind of a, uh, I don't know, I mean, maybe. So it's Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In fact, God was calling Gentiles to himself. And he was affirming it through signs and wonders. So then James stands up. This is a long meeting, by the way. Do you think I'm going to preach long? Because I'm sure this is a synopsis of what they did. Now, remember, James was the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different father. Yes, it's true. Jesus was Jewish, but only on his mother's side. Okay. Let that hang there a minute. Okay. But he was also known as James the Just. Because he is the James who gave us that letter that says, saving faith is never alone. It is faith alone that saves, but there's got to be some fruit or you got to wonder, right? Because he was scrupulous in continuing to keep the law. And so what do you think the Christian Pharisees thought when James gets up to speak? Finally, right? One of our guys, right? He's going to put these people in their place. But that's not what happens. Because while he was scrupulous in how he was going to live out his faith in Jesus, reflected by some of the Jewish traditions and holidays, etc., he was not going to require that of anybody else. And that 
probably really made the room go silent. James says, you know what? Let me go back to what Peter just said. After he had finished, they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which, a little aside, is the most Jewish of the three or four names that Peter is called, right? So do you hear what James is doing there in his wisdom? He's saying he hasn't not become a Jew because of all this, but Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, if you're familiar with Hebrew scriptures, what does that phrase, a people for his name, always refer to when you're reading the Hebrew scriptures? Israel, ethnic, cultural Jews. But James is saying, look, we have heard the story of Cornelius over and over again. In fact, Luke records it, like I said, three times, just so everybody would get it, that God was doing a new thing, for those of you who are familiar with DC Talk. He's saying, God now is calling out a people for his name, this Jewish phrase, identifying God's chosen people as both Jews and Gentiles. He's basically saying Gentiles are on equal footing. God took the initiative to gather the Gentiles. And then I love it because where does he go to support this? To the prophets, right? The Hebrew scriptures. In essence, he's saying, I, don't make, I didn't make this up. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, says James, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek Yahweh and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. All the what? All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says Yahweh, who makes these things known from of old. In Messiah, and you see this in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus too, he brought two groups of people. Because remember, Gentile just means anybody who's not Jewish, right? So that's the two big categories, Jewish, not Jewish, right? Jewish, Gentile. It says, I'm making one people. In, in the Messiah, there's restored Israel, which are those who've responded and made Jesus, in fact, their Messiah. They've acknowledged that. And the Gentiles, who are also called by God's name and also have trusted Jesus as God's Messiah. And so then he gives this conclusion. This is James, right? The half-brother of Jesus, who decides to sum all this up. Because I think what he emphasizes in this beginning of verse 19 is that the way of salvation and the basis of church fellowship are always the same for Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, one, to abstain from things polluted by idols, and two, from sexual immorality, and three, from what has been strangled, and four, from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's basically saying is, you will find Jews scattered almost every place you're going to go. And they've been reading these laws for years, so it's ingrained in them. So we don't need to make the Gentiles act like Jews, but we are going to ask the Gentiles to be aware of the sensibilities of those who grew up Jewish. And the law was at the core of who they were. That while, yes, we're saying it's Christ alone, we're also saying to those of you who are Gentiles, 
don't sort of flaunt that freedom among Jews who've come to follow Jesus Messiah, because like James, they may still be very scrupulous in how they keep the holidays, etc. Now, there is a lot of controversy on the four things that he asks, and there's lots of explanations. Let me give you two that make sense to me, and you can pick whichever one. One is, because these four things are mentioned in Leviticus 17 and 18. I know you all knew that, but um, just thought I would mention there. And they are primarily ceremonial kinds of issues in that particular section in Leviticus. And you'll notice that three out of the four are clearly that, right? It's the meat sacrifice to idols, strangled uh, blood, the um, uh, blood sacrifices, yeah, and food thing sacrifices. Anyway, the one that throws all of us for a loop is and from sexual immorality. Well, in that section is a whole section on marriage by degree. Like, who are you free to marry? And it's saying, like, not your father's second or third wife's daughter, right? There's just a lot of near kind, kindred thing. So one could be that they were saying, basically, sociologically, these are Gentiles, right? They're, they've been known to do just about anything. And so just be aware when you're with your Jewish Christian friends not to sort of make that an issue if that's already part of your life. Right? Don't, don't offend them. Don't mention it. Don't make it a big deal. Don't talk about your freedom in Jesus. Right? That's reading between the lines, but that's one of it. The other is that he mentions the three ceremonial things, but the fourth one about sexual immorality, if it's in its broader context, could be, in essence, to say to them, Here, you know, these ceremonial things, just be careful what you do when you invite people over for dinner who are Gentile, etc. But there are also some sort of unchangeable things that everybody ought to avoid, like sexual immorality. So that could be it. I'm not sure which it is for sure. I, I lean toward the first one, but... But I jotted in my notes this morning as I was at my sister's house and reading back through it, and I just said, you can be a Christian and be wrong in some of your theology. Right? Because think about it. These Pharisees who said you have to be circumcised are counted as brothers in Christ. There's no question about their salvation. There's a question about their understanding of the gospel and what that means, which I think ought to tell us, again, there, there needs to be sort of a, a humility as we study the word and then as we interact with other people who are followers of Jesus and have kind of come to different... I mean, most of us lived through the whole COVID thing, right? And you had people who equally loved Jesus, equally read the Bible and came to some very different kinds of conclusions on what does it look like to live out my faith in this context. And some of it got really harsh and ugly, and I think we need to repent if we were in those camps where we just sort of wrote people off. Because here you had something even more related to Scripture, and they had a great dispute, and they worked their way through it, acknowledging that in some cases you can be wrong. So the Jerusalem Council, it seems ended up addressing two separate but connected issues. The first one is, what do you need to be saved? And that was primarily to the Pharisaical, or the Pharisee Christians, right? And no, you don't have to be circumcised. No, you don't have to keep the entire law in order to be saved. But the corollary of that was to the Gentile believers, you've never been under that law. 
Don't be judging them for feeling still comfortable there and finding maybe some significance in the rites. I grew up Lutheran. And I got to tell you, there are times I miss, kind of, I knew what every Sunday was going to be like. And we'd read from the Gospels and we'd read from the Old Testament. And, right? And in evangelical churches, there really is still a liturgy. It's just not as obvious. Right? Three songs, a sermon, then a song. You know, I mean, we've got them. <laughs> right? No offense to those who lead, but... Um, and we keep it to 35 minutes. But, uh, but, so we've all got a liturgy. But for some people, and if you've met people who were Jewish, both by birth and conviction, who've come to know Jesus as Messiah, they find a richness in a lot of those things that we don't know. So again, just kind of a warning to, to be careful about how we judge others. And, and be aware that sometimes we get too glib with sort of our freedom in Christ. And the fact that this issue comes up again, I mean, Paul writes about things, sacrifice to idols, and I mean, so this doesn't go away easily, which is also a reminder that thorny issues, you don't just take one vote and it's done. Anybody live through church meetings, right? You know, it, there's all the parking lot discussion that always happens after the vote's taken. Come on, you've been there. So... Just a reminder that sometimes it gets really challenging. And yet God calls us to work together as brothers and sisters and figure this stuff out as best we can. So the decision after James speaks is found in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, and the whole church. The same three groups. See, they might have been welcomed early in the meeting. But the fact that all three of them are still on board at the end of the meeting, that's a win to choose men from among them, to send them to Syrian Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. See, now it went back to the other order, Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles. See the, the designation there? Right from the very first letter back to them, it's, yes, you are part of the family. The brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, so let's remember that words can trouble, unsettling your mind, and I love this a little aside, because even Peter seems to say, I mean, Paul, uh, in his letter to Galatia says, these people came from James. But what's the next phrase? I love it. Although we gave them no instructions, right? Plausible deniability. It has seemed good to us Having come to one accord, that's a key. Because when was the other time they were in one accord? In the upper room. When the Holy Spirit came and then began to live with every believer. Um, so they're in one accord. To choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some street cred. Verse 27. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, to abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep the, yourselves from these, you'll do well, right? And you probably will be able to hang together on that. And from this moment on, the mission to both Jews and Gentiles can move on side by side. Because now everybody understands it is the gospel alone 
that is the issue, right? We can, again, talk about lifestyle and choices and wisdom and all the rest of that stuff. As I've often said, I think I've said it here while I was on staff at Bethany, right? The Christian life is really quite simple. It's just not easy. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? They're not hard concepts. It's the living them out in our families, in our churches that becomes the challenge. So, the response by the church of Syria and Antioch, of course, in verse 30 is, so when they were sent off, they went to Antioch and Syria, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of what? The encouragement. The call alongside, the we're in this together, the encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers, it's by the way, and sisters, for those of you, uh, with many words. Verse 33, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And then they'll head out on another missionary journey. Which brings me to the two words that those of you who were here when I was on staff at Bethany, or the last time I preached, those words, so what, that you love to hear. And you know why? It's not because I'm going to help you apply this. It's because he's almost done. I mean, he's only got a couple more points. Um, the first has to do with church conflict. And I know Bethany's never had any church conflict. <laughs> never. Uh, but I think we have models. Now, we need to be careful with Scripture because sometimes it is more descriptive than prescriptive. Right? It describes what happened. It doesn't say it was good. When Paul and Barnabas split over John Mark... There's no record from Luke's standpoint who was right in that debate. You know, do we take this guy who left or do we, whatever. So sometimes it's just descriptive and you have to kind of figure it out. But I think here it models some really good principles. The first is they didn't deny the difference. Right? They said, we, we've got this disagreement. And I'm sure, because we've got the shorthand account, that there were differences as to how they got there. But they didn't say, well, there's no big deal. Or, you know, I hear God calling you to plant another church somewhere else. <laughs> you know, they, they said, we got to figure this out. They boldly and strongly stated their differing ideas. They didn't dance around it. Three, the people aired their opinions and feelings before the leaders spoke so that they didn't tip their hand or try to influence the outcome. And what seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to the group at the conclusion was the basis for the decision. Right? There's just a, a collective sense of the Holy Spirit's been in this. It seems good to us as well. We can't see how it's violating any scripture, and we're not going to lose half the congregation. So this is where we're going with this thing. And we're glad they did. The second one, uh, for me, the implication is, again, the, the solas of the Reformation. And whether you're Calvinist or Arminian in your leanings, in terms of the order of salvation, right? God chose you and then you believed or you believed and therefore you were chosen into God's family and that. Um, everybody agrees on this. They disagree on tulip. You know, that's the, the, the Calvinist end of things. But on this they agree. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, anchored in scripture alone, to God's glory alone. Those are the five solas of the Reformation. And I think if we begin to think that as sort of our rubric, our grid through which we deal with things that are in conflict, this is a good place to at least start. It isn't going to give you specific answers, but does this express a trust in 
that by grace alone, God has taken the initiative to draw us to himself. And that it's by faith alone that I respond to that grace of God. And that faith needs to be placed in Christ alone, not Christ and, but Christ alone. Anchored in the word of God, he loved us enough to put it in writing, to God's glory alone. Not who won the argument, who gets to keep the property, and it's none of that stuff is important. So just a little advice, if you ever run into a situation where you have a conflict at the church, that one of the things you might want to do is pull up this slide and just say, how do we walk through this as we work together as brothers and sisters in Christ to figure out how we deal with the things that we disagree about? And the last one for me was this, again, this whole issue of Christian freedom. We need to be careful about not making non-biblical requirements for salvation or sanctification. And I alluded to this earlier, but the method of justification ultimately determines the method of sanctification. And I get this from Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And whether we consciously do this or not, how we figure we got right with God colors how we figure we stay right with God. So it's important. That's where the solas come in again. And in Galatians, again, Paul writes, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Right? If, it, if it took grace to save you, it's going to take grace to keep you maturing in your walk. So we need to be careful about not adding to what God's already said is necessary for salvation. The second one on this Christian freedom thing is we need to be willing to restrict our freedom for the sake of others. And I go to that classic passage in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Because members winning not only to salvation, but to sanctification, to growing in that faith. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. You notice he had all those alls and then some. Not everybody's going to respond to the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot in this passage, but boy, are we glad that this discussion happened while that first generation of Christians was still alive. And James and others who were part of the life of Jesus were able to listen to the church and to reflect on what they knew from the Hebrew Scriptures and to point this 10- or 15-year-old movement in the direction of faith in Christ alone. It doesn't, again, mean it's easy or that we won't have disagreements. But may we keep coming back to Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and may the way we live our lives and even the way we disagree reflect the character of Jesus. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.